Hey girl, I'm your host Diana, and this is Our Space, the podcast where we talk about the health and well-being of Black women with Black women. Hey y'all, welcome back. So today we have no interviews, it is just me and my public health takes. I'll explain in just a minute. If you follow us on social media, you may know that this month is National Diabetes Month or American Diabetes Month, depending on what source you look at. Now, you're probably also very familiar with this term. If you're a black woman listening, I'm sure you've heard something at some point at a doctor's visit or something about diabetes. Diabetes is one of the chronic conditions we hear about a lot when it comes to black Americans. As with many other chronic conditions, we are disproportionately affected by it, specifically type two diabetes, which is most often tied to lifestyle choices like lack of physical activity, diet, etc. So that brings up talks of obesity, which is another condition we are overrepresented in, and our diets and cultural foods that we enjoy. So like soul food, the fact that we use sugar and lards and butter and all of that in our foods, all of that comes up. Though there is some truth woven into the story of black people and diabetes, I wanna dive deeper on some of the things we aren't really talking about, the things we're not taking into consideration or mentioning when we talk about diabetes and how it affects our community. Today's entire episode is essentially a public health in pop culture episode. If you're new here, public health in pop culture is where I attempt to make public health cool and fun in a way that makes sense to other people. Public health is all around us. In some way, shape or form, you are encountering public health and you don't realize it. Things like water and sanitation, those things fall under the umbrella of public health. And you're probably not thinking that. So I take those topics and I tie them to things that are happening either right now or things that just need to be connected on a real general normal level so that they make sense. I don't know. You'll see as we go. We're talking about everything from BMI to the rise of highway systems and fast food. All of those things, believe it or not, are connected and it will make sense as we go. I promise. So as always, let's start with some data. And we're also going to start with a word from a man who got some sense. Bear with me. Here we go. This is a direct quote from an article that I will link in our show description. You'll have access to it. It's a really good article. It starts with, one thing is clear about the serious problem of diabetes among black people in the United States. It's not just one thing causing the problem. It's really at all levels, said Dr. Joshua J. Joseph, assistant professor of medicine in the division of endocrinology, diabetes and metabolism at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center in Columbus. It's not just the choices people make, it's the entrenched issues that lead them to make those choices. According to the Department of Health and Human Services Offices, Office of Minority Health, 13.4% of black men and 12.7% of black women have been diagnosed with diabetes. Combined, their rate is 60% higher than that of white people. In the US, black people are twice as likely as their white counterparts to die of diabetes. They are three times as likely to end up hospitalized for diabetes-related complications. They are more than twice as likely to undergo diabetes-related leg or foot amputations. And they are more than three times as likely to have end-stage kidney disease. The article then goes on to say, researchers have hunted for genetic causes, said Joseph, who leads a research group dedicated to improving diabetes prevention and treatment. But genetics just does not explain a lot of the type 2 diabetes that we see in the United States. 
The central issue, he said, is lifestyle factors that drive obesity, which a recent study in the Journal of American Heart Association found may account for up to half of all the type 2 diabetes cases in the United States. And about 55% of black women and 38% of black men have obesity, according to the American Heart Association statistics. But those lifestyle factors, they don't come out of thin air, Joseph said, which is why we emphasize the need to look at upstream community-wide issues. So the concept upstream is in quotation marks. Upstream just means we can't look at things at an individual level all the time. Sometimes you got to backtrack. You got to go literally upstream to see what's causing the blockage. I think this is actually like a really, again, fundamental public health concept, this upstream concept. You can't, if you see something is going on with the water, you're like, what's going on? That's kind of weird. The stream seems kind of messed up. You have to go to the original source. Where is the water coming from originally to then figure out? Well, this is why it's blocked down here, or this is why this is going on down here, if that makes sense. So that is the crooks of where we're going today. We are going to talk about the fact that diabetes, though it is related to lifestyle, how lifestyle choices sometimes are are chosen for you, in a sense. You can only make, you, can, you only have so many options. And as people of color, we often are in a position where it's choosing the lesser of two evils. So we're gonna get into it and we're gonna, this is where the highway, the fast food, the car, BMI, they're all coming into play right now. So as I've mentioned several times in the past, urban planning is something that I am very interested in and passionate about because I think it's one of those things that again, people don't realize just how deeply entrenched a lot of the the racism that we talk about, how it's literally woven into our streets and things like that is just, again, fascinating to me. So let's start there. It's like a running joke in my house that I'm crazy about this concept of, of the rise of the highway system. I have said on record that the highway system is one of the worst things to happen to Black America. America as a whole, if you ask me, but the highway system in Black America, specifically Black and Hispanic neighborhoods, were destroyed by the highway. So I'm going to start with an article to just kind of give you all some clips or some excerpts about where I'm coming from about my craze over the highway. So this is from the History Channel. It is how interstate highways gutted communities and reinforced segregation. America's interstate highway system cut through the heart of dozens of urban neighborhoods. The article starts with, when Congress approved the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, it authorized what was then the largest public works program in U.S. history. The law promised to construct 41,000 miles of an ambitious interstate highway system that would crisscross the nation, dramatically expanding America's roadways and connecting 42 state capital cities and 90% of all American cities with populations over 50,000. Its goal was to eliminate unsafe roads, inefficient routes, and traffic jams that impede fast and safe cross-country travel. President Dwight Eisenhower called the massive infrastructure project essential to the national interest. Whose interest? You will see. But the highway expansion implemented largely between the late 1950s and the early 1970s came at a huge cost to America's urban communities of color. According to estimates from the U.S. Department of Transportation, more than 475,000 households and more than a million people were displaced nationwide because of the federal roadway construction. Hawking highways cut through neighborhoods, darkened and disrupted the pedestrian landscape, worsened air quality, and torpedoed property values. Communities lost churches, green spaces, and a whole swath of homes. 
They also lost small businesses that provided jobs and kept money circulating locally. Crucial middle-class footholds in areas already struggling from racist zoning policies, disinvestment, and white flight. And that, keep, keep that business piece in mind because that is also going to come up when we move to fast food. So the article goes on to say the neighborhoods destroyed and the neighborhoods destroyed and families uprooted by the highway projects were largely black and poor, wrote New York University law professor Deborah N. Archer in her article, White Men's Roads Through Black Men's Homes, Advancing Racial Equity Through Highway Reconstruction. And that was by design, she noted. Policymakers and planners saw highway construction as a convenient way to raise neighborhoods considered undesirable or blighted. And they deployed the massive infrastructure elements, multi-lane roadbeds, concrete walls, ramps and overpasses as tools of segregation, physical buffers to isolate communities of color. Hardly a major city with a significant minority population, hardly a major city with a significant minority population went unscathed by the legislation. New York, Miami, Chicago, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, Oakland, Nashville, Baltimore, Atlanta, and more. By the time the interstate highway system was completed, Archer wrote, it had fundamentally restructured urban America. So then this is, I'm gonna read one more part because I just think this is very interesting. And again, it's because it's so blatant and the people around us, the policymakers around us, they allowed it to happen. They heard verbatim that they were trying to do this specifically to isolate urban communities, black people specifically. And they said, okay, yeah, yeah, let's do that. That sounds like a great idea. So the article goes on to say, Robert Moses, go, it's a quote from him, go right through cities and not around them. One of the most influential post-World War urban planners was New York City's construction coordinator, Robert Moses, who oversaw all public works projects in the nation's largest metropolis, including an astonishing array of its roadways, bridges, tunnels, housing projects, and parks. Not only was Moses arguably the most powerful unelected official in the state's history, but his influence on federal highway policy extended well beyond New York. He was a leading proponent of the idea that the best way to eradicate the supposed slums where black people lived was to build highways through them. It goes on to give us a quote from our friend Moses. Our categorical imperative is action to clear the slums, Moses said in a 1959 speech. We can't let minorities dictate that this century old chore will be put off another generation or finally abandoned. Moses who was also the chairman of the New York City Slum Clearance Committee, said that the highway construction must go right through cities and not around them. Two of the city's main arteries he created, the Cross Bronx and Bronx Queen, and the Brooklyn Queens Expressways, did just that, cutting through the heart of the Bronx and Red Hook neighborhoods. Now, I'm not from New York, so I don't know exactly what they're talking about, but I know what they're talking about. <laughs> I know what they did. In 1956, Federal Highway Act ran with this strategy, offering to pay 90% of the cost of states' new roadways, with the caveat that they consent to build them through every major city to connect the emerging suburbs to downtown centers where commuters worked and shopped. According to Archer, highway engineers came to think of, quote, killing two birds with one stone, to, quote, improve traffic conditions and remove undesirable populations. So. Yeah, there's that. So <laughs> I hope through all of that reading, y'all got to the main point here, which is that they built highways through our communities, which fundamentally destroyed our communities, both culturally. Um, it drove. I, OK, let's back up a little bit. Y'all know highways. These highways went through our communities and not only did it displace people, but it also 
essentially strangled our economy in those areas homes families small businesses all impacted by now having a highway running through them so you're probably thinking to yourself what's that got to do with diabetes really okay so let's keep going i'm not going to continue with that article but we're going to start thinking about it we're going to start putting pieces together so we now are in a place where in the 19 50s, early 70s, that whole time period, we are building up these highways, we are segregating our communities, and now we are cutting our communities off from what at the same time was happening, suburbs. Suburbs also had a rise at the same exact time. So a little bit more about me and my fascination with this concept. I used to think that it was the car that ruined America. It was not the car, it was the highway. Because the highway system was created, cars were at a boom. So chicken before the egg, the, the egg is the highway the chicken is the highway, whatever, y'all get my point. So highway systems mess everything up, segregate our communities. And now our communities are not only being divested from, so we're losing money because obviously if the highway is now through it and redlining and all of that, who about to buy a house over there? Our houses are becoming abandoned. Businesses are becoming abandoned, dropping the property values and all of those things, perpetuating white flight into the suburbs, which again is taking money out of our communities because now they're segregated. There's an article that I read specifically. Um, I'm not going to share it with y'all today all the way. But it was just saying how one specific highway, I'm pretty sure it was in Milwaukee, they said, it went right through their cultural center. This particular city or Milwaukee in this particular area was very culturally diverse. And when they built the highway system, it, it's I-94 actually. It's coming back to me. It's I-94. When they built that, it essentially cut off these two different cultures that had been together. Um, I can't remember the exact cultures, but it was black people and other minority groups. They were together, mixing and mingling, sharing culture, sharing food, sharing ideas, building a community. I-94 went right through it and essentially cut off all, not literal communication, but it, it, it separated them. It changed how they were functioning as a community. So like I mentioned, a lot of things were happening at the same exact time and they're all connected as I always say, by design, these things went together. So this article goes on to say, at the time the highways were being built, the civil rights movement was gaining momentum. Congress and federal courts began to outlaw racist housing tactics, such as restrictive housing covenants that prevented black residents from buying into white neighborhoods and redlining, a longstanding governmental zoning practice that had denied federally insured home loans to anyone living in a designated black community. As anxiety rose about the prospects of integrated neighborhoods, highway construction offered a solution. Substantial physical barriers that could be used to reinforce racially determined neighborhood boundaries. The federal government often predicted highway funding on the state or city's promise to use it for that purpose. Instead of going through black communities, so let me back up, this is a quote. Instead of going through black communities, some interstate highways encircled them in an attempt to contain and confine black residents and skirt constitutional prohibitions on racial zoning, wrote Archer. In this way, the highway system was a tool of segregationist agenda, becoming a, quote, protective maze of freeways, moats, concrete parapets, and asphalt no man's land that separated white communities from black communities and protected white people from black migration. So one of the things, one of the reasons why I read that is not only because, you know, good excerpt, but the concept of encircling. So why that's important, and I think another strong point to be made in this discussion as we go and as it develops, is that 
not only was the goal segregation, but it was to keep us in certain areas, the encircling. So then when you think about all the things that I mentioned about divestment, lack of resources and things like that, you are now trapped in that area. And that is where the, the dots are going to start connecting. We are stuck in some of these areas. Still to this day, some of us. Um, but yeah, that that is what I wanted to take from that. Just that this is this was 1000% a trap. They were getting money specifically for this and somebody everybody was cool with it. That was that was okay. Okay, so I could talk about the highway forever if we're being honest, but we're going to move on to another piece of this puzzle. So we've already figured out that our neighborhoods are segregated. They're keeping black people all in the same spot. So earlier I also mentioned I've already mentioned the car. I've mentioned suburbs a little bit, but one of the things that I mentioned early in the episode was fast food. So one of the things that I, now this was a hypothesis that I had. I came up with this and then of course I found data to support it. Actually, that sounds crazy. You should not do that. But I guess what I'm saying is I knew there was data that would support it. I knew that this was actually a concept that I didn't just come up with. Because as you'll see, even though it might sound anecdotal, it's, it's suspicious. Just like everything else in America, it was suspicious to me. So anyway, what I'm talking about is the fact that there are so many um, fast food places and bodegas and things like that in our neighborhoods as opposed to Whole Foods and Publix and other fresh foods and, and supermarkets and farmers markets. That's not what you're finding in the hood. And it's again, it's by design and it's not an accident. So I did my Googles. I found some information and I also found an interesting book wrapped up in this information. Someone has written a whole book about this. So again, y'all, I'm not just... I'm not tripping, you're not tripping. I'm sure other people have noticed that you can't find a grocery store in some of our neighborhoods, but you can find a Popeyes or a McDonald's, specifically a McDonald's, keep that in mind. So in this article full of supporting information for what I had going on in my head, I found an article that says, why is there so much fast food in poor urban areas? A new book offers an answer, implicating government programs originally designed to encourage entrepreneurship and development. So the book that they are referencing came out in March of 2017. This article is also from 2000, 2017, sorry. And it's called Supersizing Urban America, How Inner Cities Got Fast Food with Government Help. And it is by Chin Zhao. Am I saying that correctly? I'm not sure. I hope that I am. But if I'm not, I do apologize. But anyway, so the book is all about how this kind of happened, how, how this started to happen, how we got more McDonald's and things like that and Kentucky Fried Chicken and all those restaurants in our areas. And again, with government help, that's the key right here. So the article starts off talking about some new fast food place that they wanted to open up in the L.A. area, maybe even specifically the Watts era area, that neighborhood. Um, the people didn't like it, whatever. They're going back and forth. So I'm going to pick up in the article where it starts talking about the, the government's role in this, and it will absolutely make sense. Let's get into it. In 1965, in the wake of the notorious Watts riots, President Lyndon B. Johnson sent officials from the Small Business Administration to California, instructing them to, quote, eliminate the deep-seated causes of riots. The SBA pursued this goal in large part by fostering minority entrepreneurship in urban areas as a basis for improved local employment and morale. Unfortunately, SBA officials joined by members of the Department of Housing and Urban Development decided that a particularly promising kind of entrepreneurship for the urban underclass was in fast food. In 1968, SBA conference on the theme of African-American business ownership explicitly highlighted in its words, quote, franchising a possible solution 
to the ghetto entrepreneur's difficulties, end quote. In case there was any confusion about what kind of franchising was envisioned, the SBA invited Dunkin' Donuts to co-sponsor the event. Two years later, Zhao says, Dunkin' Donuts received SBA loan guarantees worth $414,700. This is a 1970s dollar, so it's probably probably more than a million in today's dollars, to open 11 new franchises. And thus, a trend, corporations soliciting grants from the government to enact, to initiate Black-owned inner-city fast food franchises, was now underway. Measures enacted by the Nixon administration ensured that the ties established by the SBA among inner cities, African Americans, and the fast food restaurants would quickly strengthen and expand. The Office of Minority Business Enterprise, established in 1969, aimed to establish 10,000 new minority franchises over two years. Technically, according to the author of the book, quote, this program was open to different sectors employing the franchise model. But again, in reality, African-American franchises were more likely to be in the fast food than, the, than any other franchising sector. Fast food entrepreneurs quickly emerged to take advantage of the government's legacy. The most notable player, the former NFL star Brady Keys, received $9 million from federally funded minority enterprise programs to start 50 fast food franchises in the early 1970s, namely Kentucky Fried Chicken outlets in Cleveland, Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C., Understandably, with the proliferation of fast food franchises in poor inner city neighborhoods, African-American consumers became interested in both patronizing these establishments and keeping them black owned and operated. There have been, Zhao says, boycotts of white owned McDonald's franchises in urban African-American neighborhoods. She notes how KFC and McDonald's outlets in African-American communities gestured towards Afrocentricism by, for example, displaying artwork by African-American artists featuring black subjects or providing employer uniforms incorporating elements of the Kente-inspired design. Then came Madison Avenue to naturalize, once and for all, the association between African-Americans and the inner city fast food. With more and more franchises owned by African-Americans and with African-Americans increasingly consuming fast food, executives beginning with those at McDonald's in 1971 started hiring marketing firms to target black communities. By 1990, according to Zhao, McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's dedicated one-fifth of their radio and television advertising budgets to African-American audiences. In 2012, a Yale University study found that the fast food industry, quote, disproportionately targeted African-Americans and Latino children in advertising. So, let's put some more of the pieces together. Our neighborhoods are segregated, we're strangled from other things by the government, and the government says, hey, hey, hey. We're going to throw y'all a bone. We're going to help y'all get y'all own businesses. But the kind of businesses y'all should have should not be grocery stores. Heaven forbid. Let's open a McDonald's and another one and another one and another one. <laughs> Let's open up a KFC. Because, again, even though the article clearly states that they could have opened other kind of franchises, there's no mistake. And, again, the, the signaling, the messaging that was being sent to African-Americans wanting to own businesses or get it on these franchising dollars, open a McDonald's and we'll give you some money. And then, yeah, the rest is history. So those dots are now connected. I do have another article about fast food because, again, I think this is interesting. And I think it's the fact that 
I, yes, I'm a public health professional, but I'm almost 30. I wasn't always a public health professional. I was a consumer. I was just a person seeing things. And it is not lost upon me that, again, you can tell what a neighborhood is like. You could probably even guesstimate the property value on some in some areas based off of the kind of things you see around the sidewalk um, or if there's a sidewalk, green spaces, the presence of fast food versus whole food options, all of those things. And not just whole foods, the grocery store, whole foods, like whole fruits and vegetables. The presence of those dictate and tell you a lot about what's going on around you. And again, fascinating stuff. (laughs) So let's get into this second article, which goes into, again, similar topics, nothing new, but I think there is a quote that I'd like to share with y'all that, again, just really drives it home that this was, again, by by design and not a mistake that they did this to us on purpose. And let me just get this out the way while I'm on the subject of doing things to us, quote unquote. At no point do I want anyone to mistake this conversation, this this productive conversation that I'm trying to have about urban planning and the black community and diabetes and chronic disease with not taking accountability. Obviously, with lifestyle choices, choices have to be made by the individual. However, though accountability needs to be taken on the part of the individual, it is imperative that we realize that everyone does not have the same choices, the same options, the same opportunities to make quote, healthy lifestyle choices. That is what I'm trying to drive home. Not saying that, oh, the government made us fat. No, because somebody, someday this podcast gonna blow up and this gonna be, it's gonna end up on the wrong side of the internet. I'm never trying to say that just no accountability should be taken by us as a community. However, however, there is a strong connection between policies and things that were made long before some of us were born um, that put us in the predicament that we are in today just let's just clear the air on that one i'm all for personal accountability but let's keep it real about who has opportunity who has who has choices everybody don't have choices y'all know that i know that and yeah that's that on that so anyway back to the next article on fast food all right so this particular article again i'm gonna start in the middle however the title is how fast food chains supersized inequality Fast food did not just find its way to low-income neighborhoods. It was brought there by the federal government. That was like the the byline, the next part. Anyway, so going, scrolling down. This all happened in 2017, all these articles, and I assume that's because that's when the book came out. Again, this book came out in March of 2017. So we're jumping down to the part that I want to read first. We're going to start here. So the article says, like, quote, ethnic advertising in the alcohol and cigarette industries, fast food companies sold a dream of middle class affluence to communities of color that were nonetheless still excluded from the house, housing and education that would make those aspirations a reality. Zhao's book shows conclusively that obesity and diet in America have little to do with personal responsibility and everything to do with public policy. The next paragraph goes on to talk about Again, President Lyndon B. Johnson and his war on poverty and then Nixon and you know how that go. Um, Providing loans to the businesses and all that. It just brings that back up. I'm going to jump in again just because I really want to read this quote from President Nixon. Is it necessary? No. Is he childish? Yes. So anyway, Nixon, Johnson's successor, saw in the promotion of black business a mixture of markets and morals that fit his anti-communist agenda and the conservative belief that all the poor need to prosper is uplift. In a position statement released after he created the Office of Minority Business Enterprise in 1969, Nixon stated, what we need is to get private enterprise into the ghetto. 
and get the people of the ghetto into private enterprise, not only as workers, but as managers and owners. I don't know. I just, again, it was the 60s, it was a different time, but like Nacho said it very explicitly, quoted the ghettos. That's just, I don't know. He never needed to do that. But again, Nixon is not a good person and we all know he's waiting for us at the gates of hell. So anyway. The program was allocated $65 million in the first year, although Nixon asked for three times as much, and fast food companies were some of the most eager participants. They used federal money to expand franchises from the white suburbs into low-income black neighborhoods, providing an easy-copied business model and a tested product. So again, they saw it profit. Like, oh yeah, definitely, we'll definitely help these black people open up these McDonald's. Spoiler alert, some of these McDonald's didn't last, but... We'll keep going. The growth of fast food franchises like McDonald's into black neighborhoods with black owners was a highly visible step taken toward Nixon's dream of more robust black capitalism. The Small Business Administration made thousands of loans in the early 1970s to black entrepreneurs. There were just 405 minority franchises in the United States in 1969. By 1974, there were 2,453. This growth owed not a little to loans from the SBA. This growth owed not a little to loans from the SBA. Anyway, McDonald's went from one minority franchise in 1969 to 10,142 in 1984, mostly African-American. Now, this is very interesting to me when I jumped into this research today. This is a little sidebar. There's actually a book that I have on my Audible that I will listen to and at some point we can talk about it again but it's actually a book about this very topic but from a different angle it's a book by a black woman about what franchising McDonald's did for our community and I'm pretty sure she's talking about it in a positive way so now I really really am interested in reading this book um, I will link it in the show description as well and if anyone's read it reach out to you girl because again I'm now interested because from what the reason why I got the book because I thought it was interesting and uplifting and positive now I'm like is she talking about it in a positive way I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, so that happened. All these all these African-American owned McDonald's. The article goes on to say just as fast food companies attempted to modernize, quote, ghetto diets, they also wanted to create a new black business class for the government. This group was important because of their community standing, which could purportedly help to keep order. Again, they was trying to this is so this foul. Anyway, for fast food companies, the new black uh, bourgeoisie. Which again, anyway, let me keep going. In places where white owners were distrusted, Zhao shows that under the guise of community empowerment, federal loan programs may have diversified who access capital, but they also redistributed money upward to fast food companies, which grew their business while bypassing riskier investments that didn't involve government support. In my reading, I also came across the fact that not only were they trying to avoid risky investments, quote unquote, but what they were also trying to avoid by having all this black entrepreneurship and we want y'all to be managers and workers and all of that was, again, expanding their bottom line while not having to send white people into the, quote, ghettos. So, again, they were they said, oh, these inner cities are rough. These inner cities that we have created, oh, they rough. They stabbing, they killing, they got gang violence. How about we just let them handle their stuff? Which I'm all for black ownership, obviously, love support, black business, all of that. However, y'all, again, we're not doing this for our true betterment, empowerment, as it was laid out to look like. And it's just, again, unfortunate, but of course, by design. So the last thing I want to mention about fast food before I wrap this whole thing up, because I know y'all been connecting the dots, but I'm going to do a little bit more for you, is the fact 
about food insecurity. So I touched on it a little bit, but I do have a quote from an article that I don't have the title for. I just copied and pasted y'all. Um, that talks about food insecurity and what that means. Food insecurity is literally just not knowing if you'll have food and things like that. And that's actually very predominant and um, over overrepresented. I'm trying to think of the word. It's a big deal in our communities. Anyway, going on. So the quote is, food insecure families report facing challenges purchasing fresh fruits and vegetables, including high cost relative to their household budgets. Lack of time and resources for meal preparation also contribute to food insecurity, along with racial segregation and poverty. For all of these reasons, many low-income and food-insecure households rely on fast food restaurants. Fast food offers perceived value to consumers who can get a lot of food for the price, though it may be more expensive than fresh food. Worldwide, single-parent households are more likely to experience food insecurity. Single parents are also likely to work multiple jobs and have time constraints on home meal preparation. Students, the disabled, and the elderly often lack physical space and storage space for home meal preparation and resort to fast food and pre-prepared meals. Now, again, food insecurity is something that I talked about when we brought up the highways and everything else. These are the things that the segregation of or the invention of the segregated highway system, these are the things that it did to our communities, to all communities of color. They, Though obviously a lot of this had to do with black people, but in theory it did it to all people because we know low income is not synonymous with black, though they may try to make it seem that way. So this, the segregation of this highway system, these are the things that came from that. We now have quote, low income areas that are also food insecure. These people, don't know where they're going to get their food from so they got to kind of eat what they can get bodegas came up a lot that's more of a new york thing that's the only place that i think the word bodega is actually authentic if somebody else uses it i don't think it count but whatever anyway the new yorkers will correct me (laughs) um those are the things again that we have in our communities and though they're owned by us and all of that that's wonderful they're not nutritious they're not healthy they're not the best food options but if that's all you got that's all you got and This is something, again, I've talked about legislation and things that happened between the 50s and the 70s. It is now 2023, and we are still seeing the long-reaching arm of these policies and these decisions made by people who didn't look like us, did not have our interests at heart at all, not even a little bit, um, try as they might to make it seem that way. Um, And this is what we have now. So that kind of also brings us back to, we're going to keep bringing this back to diabetes. So again, type 2 diabetes, which is where most people are overrepresented, I think 90 to 95% of the diabetes that we have in America is type 2. So anyway, those are that is related to lifestyle choices. Again, your lifestyle choices are limited when you live in certain areas, when you look a certain way. And that that is the, the thing that I want to keep driving home here is that it's not... It's not an indictment on you. Sometimes I do feel like people feel embarrassed or feel bad about certain disease states. And I think diabetes and obesity are two of them where people feel people have attached those things to morality, obesity mainly. But then obesity is a strong indicator or risk factor for diabetes. So by extension, diabetes kind of gets some of the flack from obesity as well. And again, it's it's a personal indictment. It seems morally wrong, like, oh, you're fat. Uh, you must be a terrible person, which again, we obviously know is not true, but somehow America has tied those two things together. So people feel like, wow, I got to do better. I got to go to the gym and all of that might be true, but also always acknowledge that 
some of this, there's a reason why you don't even have the option to go get fresh fruits and vegetables to meal prep and do all of that. You got to work multiple jobs or you got to do this just to get us a piece of money and then it all go to rent. I can't stress this enough. Rent is going through the roof. I think I mentioned it every episode because it's really astonishing. But anyway, so all of those things are a compounding issue and it needs to be talked about. Again, enough cannot be said about the the high level the high level things and policies we need to do because it was high level policy that got us in this position in the first place. Okay, so I'm gonna read this one last little thing that I think puts a perfect bow on everything that I'm trying to say. Y'all know I be I be rambling sometimes, but I think this particular segment of one of the articles I already read actually, I think this particular segment puts it all together and then we will close out. Article says African Americans are more likely to be obese in the United States than their white counterparts. The same is true for Hispanics. For some conservatives, that may be an indictment. For the rest of us, it is a public health problem. The rise in obesity in the U.S. is an epidemic and much of the root cause lies in poverty, a condition more prevalent in communities of color. In many U.S. cities, bodegas serve dinner in the form of chips and soda to low-income people living nearby who have no access to neighborhood supermarkets. For those without much money or options, fast food can be a blessing, a full meal that is quick and affordable in a safe and predictable setting. Yet, these very meals are one of the country's biggest public health menaces. Filled with fat and sugar, fast food is contributing greatly to obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. So look, there it goes. So let's wrap it up. Let's bring it back together. Fast food, the enemy. We knew that already. But fast food is in our communities more. How did that happen? Um, the rise of suburbs, the rise of the car, and the rise of the highway system. All of those things are interconnected. And all of those things play a part in the diabetes numbers that we see today. If I'm not mistaken, diabetes has kind of hit a plateau in the past, like, two decades. It went, it rose, rose, rose. And then it, it leveled off. But again, it hasn't gone down either, despite what we know about it. But what we know about it is individual level change. And I can't stress this enough. Individual level change is not going to do it. So... That's that on that, y'all. I hope I hope this is as riveting to y'all as it is to me because I just can't. I can't get enough of it. When I finally pull it together and go back to school and get this PhD, I promise y'all it's going to be in urban planning because it's just too interesting. And again, this is where these policies are being made. It's, it's the big stuff like this, figuring out where to put sidewalks and green spaces and stuff like that. That's happening at a big level. And if I can't make the decisions, I at least want to teach somebody else about it. Teach the next change maker. But don't hold your breath on that PhD. I got other things to do first, but I digress. So let's close out the episode like we always do. And I will talk to y'all in two weeks. In two weeks, I got a good episode for y'all. We're going to be talking about dating and relationships. going to be cute. going to be fun. So if you liked what you heard and would like to hear more from me and other Black women professionals in the future, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, turn on your notifications, leave me a five-star review, please, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Audible, and share the show with the Black woman you love. You can keep up with me and the podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Change Our Outcomes. If you want to send me show ideas or continue this riveting chat about urban planning or talk about other podcast topics, send me an email at heygirl at changeouroutcomes.com. And as always, thank you so, so, so much for all the support that you guys give me. And if no one has told you, Black girl, you are soft. Black girl, you deserve to be handled with care. And black girl, you are loved. Thank you for listening.